Occasionally, I run into someone who feels super confident about handling the toughest conversations. But for every person I've met like that, there seems to be a hundred of us who struggle at some level with handling difficult conversations the way we really want to. On this episode, Kwame Christian is back to help us all find confidence in conflict. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 380. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Every leader finds themselves in the midst of conflict, uh, if not on a daily basis, certainly regularly. And of course, I think it goes without saying, virtually every leader on a daily basis certainly finds themselves in situations where they need to influence and need to have outcomes from conversations. It is a constant challenge, and it is worth all of us getting better at this. I am thrilled to welcome back to the show today's guest who is going to help us to find confidence in conflict and also give us some useful frameworks to think about handling conflict effectively. Kwame Christian is a business lawyer and the director of the American Negotiation Institute, where he leads workshops designed to make difficult conversations easier. As an attorney and mediator with graduate degrees in both public policy and law, he brings a unique multidisciplinary approach to the topic of conflict management and negotiation. His TEDx talk, Finding Confidence in Conflict, was viewed over 24,000 times in 24 hours and was the most popular TED talk on the topic of conflict in 2017. He also hosts the top negotiation podcast in the country, Negotiate Anything, and he's the author of the new book, Nobody Will Play With Me, How to Find Confidence in Conflict. Kwame, man, it is great to have you back on the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Dave. Thanks for having me. Oh, the pleasure is mine. I am so glad we get to share a conversation with a broader audience. You and I talk all the time. And I am really excited about your book coming out. And I am so curious about the title. And when you and I were talking about this title, you were mentioning that the story goes back to first grade. So tell me the story of uh, what happened in first grade. Yeah, it's um, most negotiation books <laughs> don't have titles like this. And <laughs> so I remember vividly in, in first grade, always feeling different from my friends. So I'm a first generation Caribbean American and I grew up in a small town in rural Ohio. So growing up, I was racially different. I was ethnically different. And since my parents taught me how to talk, I had a really strong Caribbean accent. And so I remember one day on the playground during recess. I was excited to go outside, expend some of that energy. And I would, I went up to some friends and I wanted to play with them and they, they said no. And then I went to another group of friends and I said, Hey, can I play with you? And they said, no. And then I would happen again and again and again. And then recess ended, the bell rang and I didn't get to play with anybody. I just felt so lonely. And at that moment I made a decision. I said to myself, this will never, ever, ever happen again. People are going to like me. And no matter what I do, I'm going to have friends. And so from then on, I, was, I went on a friendship offensive. So I went to, <laughs> my, my goal was to have as many friends as possible. 
And it really became a defense mechanism. My friendliness and being gregarious and collecting friends, it was a defense mechanism that protected me from that loneliness that I felt at a young age. And so by the end of high school, I was the most popular kid in school. Everybody knew my name and I knew everybody by name. And when I say everybody in the school, I, I literally mean everybody. We had a graduating class of 55, so it wasn't too difficult, but yeah, that that's where I got. That's where that that promise that I made in first grade got me. But it came with a cost because it made it difficult for me to stand up for myself in difficult conversations because I wasn't willing to jeopardize the friendships that I worked so hard to get. And what I found here is, especially with learning the stories of some of my listeners, our, our greatest weaknesses often hide in the shadows of our greatest strengths. And so... For me, reaching out to people and being friendly and having a lot of friends seemed like a strength, but it made me a people pleaser. And so in the story, I talk about how I've been able to shed that fear and overcome that fear and become more confident when it comes to conflict. And it it came as a result of diligent practice and changing my mindset as it relates to these difficult conversations. We speak so much on the show about personal leadership and Like you, I've had a mentor who's made the point that our greatest strengths, if overused, can become our liabilities. And you've really found that in your own life, and you've made adjustments now to really still leverage the wonderful strength you have of building relationships with people, and yet, at the same time, being able to be really mindful of how to handle negotiation and handle conflict well to the point now where you teach other people to do it, which is just so impressive that you've made that shift. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. And and I think that's why I'm so passionate about doing it, because I, I realize the pain that people feel when they can't perform in these difficult conversations. Oftentimes, the the best things in our life lie on the other side of these difficult conversations. And so for me, the passion comes from recognizing that by equipping people with these skills and then helping them to have these difficult conversations, I'm empowering them to put themselves in a position to, to live their best possible versions of their lives. Isn't it interesting like how I think you teach something better if you've really struggled with it a lot yourself? I know one of the reasons that this show has been useful to our listeners is because I've been a pretty mediocre leader at a lot of points in my career. And so when you've struggled with something for a long time and had to work through it, I think you you have a better sense of what do people need to kind of work through it, right? Exactly. I mentioned in the introduction, you and I talk often, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I know more about you than the average person I interview because that is you, true. <laughs> you and I are in a mastermind together with a number of other podcasters. So we talk monthly and are coaching each other and helping each other to improve. And one of the things I know about you is you're a sports fan. And there's two sports that you follow that I think are really relevant to <laughs> this conversation on how to find confidence in conflict. One of them is tennis. It sounds like there's some key points. Like if you're a really great player, you understand where the pressure points are in a match and you're able to use, if you're able to have that mental presence to utilize those pressure points, those are the places that you can potentially raise your game in a substantial way if you recognize those pressure points and you're able to leverage them well. Absolutely. And and that's one of the coolest things about tennis because For instance, basketball, football, almost every other sport 
it's the numbers are in absolutes. So if I score more points than you, or in golf, if I score fewer points, less points than you, I win. That's it. That's the only thing that matters. But in tennis, not all points are created equally. There's certain points that have more value than other points. So you can see statistically at the end of some matches, one player might have won more points than another player overall. But since the other player rose their, the levels of their game at the right time to win the right points, they ultimately ended up with the victory. And so when it comes to difficult conversations, whether it's a negotiation or a conflict, there are going to be various leverage points within the conversation where this is an important point for me to win. I need to put my foot down and assert myself persuasively at this point. But there are also points where you don't need to win. Like, for instance, I, I love playing chess, and there's a concept called the strategic sacrifice, where you sacrifice a piece in order to advance your position. And you can do that in these difficult conversations too, but it's incredibly important for you to prepare so you have, actually have an idea and understanding of what those points are. But it's also very liberating too to know that you don't need to win every point in these negotiations or, or conflicts. You don't need to have a completely decisive victory over every single thing that is at issue. It is okay to give a little bit and you can still end up getting what you want, but it's important to recognize the most important things and make sure you raise your game at, at those times. You're also a fan of mixed martial arts. What have you learned from following the best fighters there? I, and a quick disclaimer, I am a fan of watching mixed martial arts. <laughs> you're, you're not out between negotiation sessions uh, in the, in the no. octagon? <laughs> no, no fight club type of mentality here. I, I like to stay safe, but I will watch other people put their bodies on the line. <laughs> so mixed martial arts is, is an interesting thing for me. I, I discovered it really personally in the last uh, five years and I fell in love. At the beginning, I thought it was just horrendous. But as I started to learn more about it and appreciate the strategy, I, I recognized that there are high levels of strategy going on. And one of the things that I was able to pull from mixed martial arts that I applied to difficult conversations is that the fighter that controls three specific areas is the fighter who's going to have a significant advantage in, in the fight. And so I took that principle, applied it to conflict management and recognized that with regard to the breakdown of communication, there are going to be three main issues that would lead to the breakdown of communication. And so we've all had those experiences where we are having a conversation and everything's going well, and then all of a sudden, things are just off track. Something went poorly, and you don't even know what's happening. You just know that what is happening right now is unproductive, unnecessarily hurtful, and you're, you're going in a bad direction very quickly. And so what I suggest doing is paying attention to three main points when it comes to the breakdown of communication in these difficult conversations. The first one is the frame. And so the frame is like the storyline that you put over the conversation. The next one is the pace, how fast or how slowly are you going? And then the last one is the direction. So what are the issues that we're talking about? Most likely, if a conversation starts to break down, it's because of a deficiency or an issue in those three major areas. So this is, I'm super interested in these three, and I'm thinking maybe even taking a step back here, you've used a couple of words already that I think that a lot of us use interchangeably, and those are negotiation and conflict. 
And those are distinct words, though. How do you define them? And then what's the distinction between the two of them? I've become more fond of simple definitions. So my definition of negotiation is any conversation where somebody in the conversation wants something. And so it's incredibly broad because I want people to recognize that negotiations are everywhere. It's not a question of whether or not you're going to negotiate. It's only a question of whether or not you're going to do it well. So the people with whom we negotiate the most are the people who are closest to us. So family, friends, colleagues, those type of everyday negotiations are going to happen more often than those grandiose deals where it's like buying a house, buying a car, or um, transactions between businesses. My definition for conflict, again, simple definition, is a negotiation with attitude. So that's where we have an emotional element that's standing in the way. And so the goal then becomes with a conflict to first address the emotional component and get it down to a level where it's manageable. And then if we're able to do that, then we just have a negotiation. And that's where we can start to trade ideas and address the substance of the issue. But if if you mistake a conflict for a negotiation, then you're going to try to um, address the substance when the person isn't emotionally ready to do it. Uh And that leads to frustration on both sides. Uh, One of the things I've heard you do in your work is be really clear of there is something to do with conflict at the beginning. And first and foremost, it's acknowledge emotions. And I'm wondering if you can tell me more about what, what that starting point looks like. Absolutely. And, and this is part of the framework for addressing all conflicts that I approach, whether it's a negotiation or a conflict at home or at work or with opposing counsel. I, I use this same framework and I call it compassionate curiosity. And so the first step is acknowledging emotions. The next step is getting curious with compassion. And then the third step is joint problem solving. And so with acknowledging emotion, what we're doing is we're recognizing that there is an emotional barrier on the other side. And we are going in with curiosity to try and learn what it is and let the other side know that we see that and we respect it. Because one of the things that people need, they need to be, they they feel as though they need to be seen. When I say seeing them, I mean, I'm seeing that that they face some emotional tumult at this time. And it's, it's real to them. And I want them to know that it's real to, to me. And so the, the example that I give is um, with my son. So he is going to be three next week. And every morning, I have hostile negotiations <laughs> with that boy, because I, I need to take him to daycare. And he doesn't yeah. want to go to daycare. My wife is a doctor, so she's gone in the morning. So it's me. And so um, I read a book because things were getting tough. <laughs> and they said, you need to acknowledge the, the emotion of the child. And I recognized that it was an issue because he started to get to this point where every morning he would tell me who he loved more than me. And so he would say, I want mommy. Okay, I want mommy too, Kai. And then he would say, I want grandma. All right, cool. And then it got bad when he said, I want Uncle Kobe. And Uncle Kobe's my brother who lives in a different city. So that one hurt. And then he crossed the line when he said this one. He said, I want Buxton. And Buxton is my brother's dog. And uh, Mm. that was unacceptable. (laughs) So I needed (laughs) to change it up. And so I tried this acknowledging emotions thing. So the next morning, what I did was this. So Kai came out crying and I say, Kai, we need to go to school. And he says, I want mommy. And I said, Kai, you love mommy, don't you? Yeah, I love mommy. You wish mommy were here so you can give her a big hug, don't you? Yeah, I wish mommy were here. How about this? How would you say, I love you, mommy? And then he said, I love you, mommy. Okay, Kai, you ready to brush your teeth? And he said, yeah, I'm ready to go. 
And so that's all he wanted. So the substantive request in that case was, I want mommy. And my request, my response negotiating was, mommy's not here. I'm, <laughs> I'm all you got. <laughs> but that's not what he truly wanted. And so oftentimes, especially in the business world, we feel as though our emotions are inappropriate, that they have no place or value. And so what we have is a, an emotional request that's veiled in a substantive request. So his substantive request was, I want mommy right now. But his emotional need at the time was, daddy, I need you to recognize that I want mommy and I miss mommy. Yeah. And that is legitimate. And we err so often. I know I have so many times of we do that well or we recognize that well in our families maybe. And we walk into the boardroom and we forget that we're still interacting with human beings that have emotions and we forget to acknowledge those emotions, don't we? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking back to what you said about tennis and MMA and thinking about where are the leverage points in conversations, especially when things aren't going great and you do sense that there's some of that attitude that shows up and it really is a conflict. And the, the three things you mentioned, the storyline, the, the framing of it, the pace and the direction. And one of the things that's coming up for me thinking about this is particularly around pace is that uh, sometimes we get into these situations and we feel like, okay, the meeting's booked for 30 minutes for this, whatever negotiation there is. And we've got to resolve it in 27 minutes and have our three minute wrap up. And if we're willing, not in every situation always, but, but at least sometimes, and especially in a high value situation to perhaps slow things down with the pace and sometimes even just have an initial meeting or maybe even a couple of meetings that end up being just about acknowledging emotions, that that's really good and important work to do. Absolutely. And one of the things I like to talk about is the concept of mini negotiations. And so let's say we have this ultimate goal. We might want our employee to change behavior or we might want the company to go in a different direction or something to that effect. And what we do is we try to get it all done in one conversation. And I think about in, uh, in terms of persuasive weight, that's a heavy conversation to have. And so if there's a rack of weights, like with dumbbells ranging from five pounds all the way up to 120 pounds, like you would see at a gym, and we need to move all of those individual weights to the other side of the room, most of us wouldn't say, you know what, it's going to, I'm going to do all of this in one go. <laughs> I'm, going <to> <laughs> right. I'm going to drag it all here. I'm going to, no, what we're going to do is we're going to take it piece by piece over there because we don't want to injure ourselves and we actually want to accomplish our goal. But we don't do that when it comes to difficult conversations. So a lot of times what we need to do is take that big, massive negotiation that we planned on having and breaking it up into mini negotiations. And like you said, Dave, have a, maybe one or two initial conversations where we only get through stage one of compassionate curiosity, which is acknowledging emotion. Mm -hmm. And in order to really see big strides when it comes to persuasion, there needs to be a recognition that at times we need to suspend our agenda in order to let the other side be heard, because if they don't feel like they've been heard, they're not going to be willing to hear you. The other thing you've been a teacher for me on, which I think is really smart, is that just because the other party may want to move on or even indicate like, oh, no, we're good. We've taken care of this and may not recognize that emotion. 
it's still worth it for you to explore that and maybe encourage you know both parties to spend a little bit more time there. How do you do that in practice? You know, you're having that conversation and the other party, you get to sense that something's up, but they're like, okay, let's move forward. What do you do? Yeah. And that's tough. And that's tough because like I said, in, in the business world, people, they, they are uncomfortable being vulnerable. So they'll, even though they feel some way, they'll, they'll try to hide it. I know for me as a, as a married man, my wife might say, Kwame, I can tell something's wrong. What's wrong? And I'll cross my arm and say, nothing. Nothing's wrong. <laughs> 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 that's, that's untrue. <laughs> and so in situations like that, what I do is I take the burden of personalizing it from them and put it to me. And so what I would do is this. It, it is a, uh, a very high-level technique called guessing. <laughs> but I, I love it in reference to me so what i would say is this i would say i see how my delivery of the product where it was later than you anticipated i could see how that would be frustrated let me say let me say this if i were in your position i would be incredibly frustrated and i would probably hesitate when it comes to working with me again if i were you that's what i would be thinking and then silence. And then they would, they, he would say, no, 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 that's not the problem. The problem is I'm getting some flack from my boss and it's really annoying me. Oh, now I discovered what that hidden emotion is. I mm. know what it is. I, I thought I knew what it was. I guessed I was wrong. He corrected me. Or I say that same thing and he says, well, you're right. If I'm going to be honest with you, you're right. And so for me, putting myself in his shoes, your shoes in that case, and saying, if I were you, I would feel this way. It puts them in a, in a position where they feel like they have more control. Because think about it, when you were in school, who has the power? It's the teacher, because the teacher has the power to correct. It's the cr teacher correcting the student, not the other way around. And so by putting myself in that position, by, by taking a guess, it makes them feel as though they have more power and control over the situation. Because now they're in the position of telling me whether or not I'm right or wrong. Now, if I'm right, great. Now we both win, especially me, because now my suspicions have been verified. So I know now I have more information. Now, if I'm wrong, great. We both win because you now have the satisfaction of correcting me, <laughs> which makes you feel more powerful and make you feel like you have more control. But I also have the benefit because in your correction, you will correct me with additional information. So I ultimately get what I want. And you're really you're doing through what you call guessing and i would even say also is curiosity of you're willing to to ask and by doing that truly you're not only allowing the person to feel like they have more power but you truly are sharing power in the interaction where you can set a stage for getting to the point where you are able to do joint problem solving which is what you really want right absolutely and and joint problem solving is the goal because like I said, in, in the three steps of compassionate curiosity, you have acknowledging emotions, getting curious with compassion, and then joint problem solving. That's ultimately where we want to get. But we want to make sure that we get to that point with the proper conversational and relational foundation. And that foundation is built upon the acknowledgement of emotions and, and gathering information in a way that's not threatening. Part of what you're really saying to me too is 
those do fall in order. Like <laughs> you, you're not going to probably have a lot of success at doing joint problem solving if you haven't first acknowledged the emotions and maybe over a couple of conversations and taken that time to get curious. That if you don't do that, you you may get to a resolution. But one of the things you've pointed out to me before too is that you may technically get what you want out of a negotiation, but it sometimes like you walk away and it doesn't quite land right. And when it doesn't, it's probably an indicator that some of that work wasn't done well. And and it potentially makes it harder for you to negotiate next time with that party, right? Absolutely. Because if you get what you want to the detriment of the relationship, you're missing out on one of those three potential benefits of negotiation. Remember at the beginning, I mentioned you have getting what you want, avoiding things that you don't want, and strengthening the relationship. There's an enormous amount of value in investing in the process in a way that actually builds the relationship. And that's one of the things that we want to keep in mind when it comes to this model, this framework of compassionate curiosity. It puts you in the best position to move the other party from an emotional state that is unproductive to productive. That's the first thing. So it puts you in a better position to get what you want. But by going through the process in this way, with this thoughtful approach, you're strengthening the relationship, which puts you in a better position next time. Because very few times are we having these negotiations or conflicts where it's a one-shot deal. You know, we're going to be having repeated interactions with this person. And then another thing we want to consider is how self-enforcing these deals are. And when I say self-enforcing, I mean, if there was no contract, would there still be a deal? If something changes in the scenario, for instance, on your side, which gives you less leverage, would you still have a deal? People are most, more likely to adhere to the parameters of the deal when those things break down, if there's a strong working relationship. But if people feel as though they had the deal forced upon them, then the only thing that's keeping you to that deal is this piece of paper that you signed if there's a contract. And they're going to be looking for ways to undermine you in order to break up the deal because ultimately they don't like it. And it's their way of seeking power of regaining the power after the negotiation is done. And so through this process, we want them to feel a, a modicum of autonomy and control. And when they feel as though they've had some hand in, pl- in putting together this agreement, the agreement is going to be a lot more solid and more likely to last into the future. And that need for power is going to come out regardless. So rather than have it come out after the fact and people trying to find loopholes and in future negotiations, have it come out in a positive way of really acknowledging and allowing for that distribution of power when the conversation is happening in the first place. Exactly. I love the analogy you also use of uh, light and bringing light into this process. And I think about that a lot in especially the step of getting curious. You know, once we've acknowledged the emotions of, of really trying to get curious about what's going on and uncover things, tell me more about how light comes into this. Right. So this is my light theory of negotiation. And so when it comes to these difficult conversations, I, I want people to think about it in terms of this metaphor where you're walking into a dark room. You don't know the, the layout of the room. You don't know what obstacles might be there. This is a, a new room, brand new room. And so when you walk into a new room like that and your goal is to get to the other side, the first thing you need to do is turn on some lights. And so the way you turn on the light in the negotiation is by asking questions. It would be unwise to, to simply sprint 
into that room and hope for the best. But a lot of times that's what we end up doing in the negotiation. We don't adequately prepare. And then we jump straight to number three, problem solving, and we try to make things happen and hope for the best. That doesn't work. So one way we turn on the lights is before the conversation by actually preparing in a systematic way. And so uh, a free gift for your audience, uh, Dave, is a a negotiation guide. It has a salary negotiation guide, a, a general negotiation guide, and a conflict management guide that walks people through a systematic approach to preparing for their negotiations. So if you go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash guide, G-U-I-D-E. You can download that free guide there. And so that's one way you can turn on the lights before the conversation. And as you'll see in the guide, one of the things I have people do is come up with a list of open-ended questions that they can ask during the negotiation. Because even though we prepare to the best of our abilities beforehand, there's going to be some information that we can only get from the brains of the person on the other side of the table. And the only way we can get that is by asking questions. And so by asking questions and actually listening to the answers, that's the other way that we turn on the light in the negotiation. And this is a good example of step two, getting curious with compassion. You want to ask these questions in a way that's non-threatening and actually encourages them to respond so they feel safe responding and giving you that information. And then once you feel as though you've turned on enough lights in the room, then you can move on to step three, which is joint problem solving. And I am curious about that transition because I think that that's a place where, especially those who haven't done a lot of negotiation formally in these high value situations, that sometimes is a bit of a mystery. If you do a good job of acknowledging emotions and having that compassionate curiosity in step two, does joint problem solving does it just emerge? Do you do you start to find what the answers are going to be, or is there some other? framework of thinking that's helpful to move to when you get to that point? Oftentimes, especially when you're with, you're negotiating in-house with colleagues, families, and friends, simply sharing the information will organically lead to joint problem solving, which at its best is a kind of like a brainstorming session where you're working together to, to co-create a solution to the issue. But sometimes, especially in more adversarial type of situations, you might need a smoother transition and might, you might need to be a little bit more intentional about how you transition. So what I would do as an attorney um, in, in my negotiations is once I feel as though I've had enough information or I want to move from the information gathering session that's in stage two and move to stage three, what I'd say is, well, I appreciate your, your candor and your, your willingness to share this information. I feel as though I have a pretty good understanding of the situation at this point. Is there anything else that you want to tell me? And I'll give them the opportunity to just wrap things up. And then I would say, is there anything else you want to ask me or know from me? So again, I'm inviting them into this process so they don't think I'm just lording over them when it comes to the trajectory of the conversation. And then once they ask their, their final questions, I'll say, okay, good. Well, Considering all of the options that you've provided, here are some things that I think could, could possibly solve the problem. And then I'd start to provide a solution. Because especially if I have enough information and I feel like I have a good understanding of the situation, if you think back to the, the psychology around anchoring, shameless plug, I have an episode on anchoring. <laughs> it's, it's giving the most aggressive offer that you can reasonably justify. I want to be the first person giving a solution in the negotiation. And then we can lead off the problem-solving session from there. 
So it, there's a structured process to follow here. And if you follow that process, these three steps, and invite those questions, and then anchor, as you mentioned, uh, and we'll, we'll track down your episode and put it here in the weekly leadership guide for everyone as well. That's a, that's a really good starting point for how you are going to jointly solve this problem. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, too, when it comes to this, you might recognize that you get into stage three, which is joint problem solving, and then an emotional issue arises and it kind of catches you off guard. Oh, I didn't anticipate this. Then what do you do? You just go back to stage one <laughs> and, and acknowledge emotions and then get curious with compassion and then find yourself back in joint problem solving. And so that's the beauty of the framework. It, it's fluid. You don't need to move rigidly from one to two to three. Sometimes you might go from one to two back to one to three to one to two, you know? So it's a bit of art and science. That's why I, I tell people that you need to take this framework and, and make it work for you. Don't feel like you need to follow it rigidly. Just keep it in mind and, and make it your own and transition in the way that feels natural for you. The book, Nobody Will Play With Me, How to Find Confidence in Conflict is out now. Kwame, always a pleasure, my friend. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dave. Thank you, Kwame. All the links that we mentioned in this episode are going to be in the show notes as well as this Wednesday's weekly leadership guide that's going to include the downloadable guide that Kwame mentioned, a link to his podcast, Negotiate Anything, which I recommend, especially if you want to dive deeper on the things he's teaching. And finally, the link to his book. So be watching for that in your email box on Wednesday. In addition to that resource, you'll want to check out some related conversations that if this episode was useful to you, I think you'll also find will further your toolbox of things you can use in the toughest situations. One of those episodes is episode 262. The title of that episode is Negotiating as if your life depended on it. My guest on that episode was Chris Voss. He is the former lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI. Talk about tough situations. Doesn't get much tougher than that. He now teaches leaders how to utilize the tactics that he learned as one of the most successful negotiators in the FBI and how to use it practically in the workplace. If you're looking for some additional tactics in the highest visibility, most difficult situations, episode 262, definitely a good complement to this conversation. Also, you'll want to check out Kwame's last appearance on the show back on episode 311, Negotiation Tactics for Results. In that episode, Kwame and I solicited questions in advance from you, our listeners, about what you were handling right now as far as tough situations. And we tackled a number of those questions in real time and talked through what are some of the tactics that folks in our audience may consider using to handle those situations. So if that is of interest to you, episode 311 will be helpful as well. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 344, Have Conversations That Matter. Celeste Headley was my guest on that episode earlier this year. It is by far one of the most commented on and, and certainly emailed on to my inbox as far as valuable episodes from this year of people mentioning it. Celeste is a host for NPR, National Public Radio here in the States, talks to guests all the time on our radio show daily and has many tough conversations. And she talks through some of the tactics that she utilizes, also the lessons from a TED Talk she did a while back that has been incredibly popular. And if you're looking for ways to improve your conversations in general, 
Make Them Matter, Make Them Count, and a wonderful compliment to today's conversation. Episode 344 is the one to check out. All of those you can find at coachingforleaders.com. If you do slash podcast, that'll take you right into the podcast library. For those of you who have your free membership already set up, once you get in there, you'll be able to easily search by topic. One of the topics is negotiation skills that this episode's under and any other topic as well. Now, if you don't have your free membership set up, you can get access to that just by going to that link or just to go to coachingforleaders.com. It will prompt you to set up your free membership. When you do, you will get the weekly leadership guide in your inbox on Wednesdays. You'll also get access to that entire podcast library, my free course, 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead, that takes you through step-by-step over 10 days, some of the key lessons from this show the entire library, the member cast, the book notes, all kinds of things in there that will be of value to you. And you can access all of those by going over to coachingforleaders.com and activating your free membership. Thank you so much this week to Maya2611 for the kind review you left on Apple Podcasts. It's also many of you have left reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and many others over the last few weeks. Thank you so much if you've taken the time to do that. I'm grateful for them. I read all of them, and uh, I just appreciate so much so many of you who share this show regularly with others. If you would like to leave a rating or review as well, coachingforleaders.com slash Apple is where to go. If you're an Overcast user and this episode was helpful, hit the star button on the app to recommend it to others. Thank you so much if you do any of that. Thank you, as always, for the privilege to be of influence, and I look forward to seeing you back next Monday. Have a great week.